Uh, but we are finishing up Corinthians, so we're really kind of on the road from Corinth to Christmas uh, over the next uh, couple weeks. And so as we get into one of our last chapters for this book, let's pray uh, and ask the Lord to bless our time. Lord, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, we we do have a great opportunity. We have a great season coming up. That's all about you, named after you. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would show us all the opportunities to share about you, to talk about you, to celebrate you, worship you. Uh, and then, Lord, uh, we pray, Lord, that even in the midst of a, a good season, a fun season, a giving season, uh, there's still, at times, opposition. Uh, things happen in our relationships, and we, we are uh, confronted with opposition. And pray, Lord, that this morning we would hear from your word and how Paul deals with opposition, that it might be an example to us. Pray that you would teach us. Uh, how to handle conflict. And so, Father, we pray that you would be with us in this time, uh, guided by your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, here we go. We're about to get started. One of my life verses. Ready? Uh, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. <laughs> Do bear with me. Not really a life verse, but kind of a fun little verse. Did you even know that that verse was in the Bible? Do bear witness with me in a little foolishness. Uh, did Paul like to have a little fun? Maybe. Uh, he's not really having fun here. He's a little bugged, actually, uh, because there's there's something going on here where he uh, is a little maybe frustrated or dealing with something that um, feels off topic. Uh, because there's this little competition going on. See, Paul's helped start this church in Corinth, and he's been uh, trying to teach them and grow the church. Uh, but there's been other missionaries, other apostles that have come uh, come by to help the church at times and such, uh, probably from Jerusalem, woo, the holy city. Uh, and what we're finding out is that uh, they're getting a little more attention than Paul is maybe. In fact, uh, some of the people in Corinth are questioning whether Paul is really an apostle, or maybe he's just maybe he's a missioner, missionary lowercase M, not capital M missionary. He's just kind of second tier because these other guys, well, you know, we we donate to them, we give to them, uh, we support them financially, and Paul came into town after having started them year earlier. He comes into town, and they, when they go to offer him a gift, as is culture for them, between friends and peers, you would offer gifts back and forth. Uh, Paul rejects the gift. He says, hey, look, all my needs are met. I'm being supported by another church. I'm doing fine. I need not take your gift. Keep your gift and help it grow your church, because that's what we're doing. We're building a church. Well, you know... Uh, that got a little goofy because their gift was rejected. And Paul said, well, wait, you're, you're thinking in terms of our relationship is, is like culture of our day. Our relationship is the way God defines it, not just by culture. And I don't want to be a burden to you, so I'm going to reject the gift. And we're going to keep moving on this mission that we're working on. Uh, but some of the people said, well, you know, we pay them. We don't pay you anything. You get what you pay for. Right? Maybe you're not worth it. You know, you're you're not really from Jerusalem. Maybe they are. Um, 
And so Paul starts getting this opposition, either from the church or from these other uh, apostles. And Paul says, wait a minute. Why are we doing comparison? We're off topic. In fact, if you really want to talk about this and do comparison, which uh, Scott shared with us last week in chapter 10 uh, with his sermon, and thank you, Scott, for sharing with us, uh, this idea that we're, we're not meant to compare. And Paul says, wait a minute, you want, you want to do this comparison thing? Oh, I get it. We're doing foolishness right now. Oh, oh, I, I didn't realize that was the game that we're playing. We're, we're doing the foolish game? Bear with me while I play the foolish game with you since you've started this conversation. I will talk in your terms on your turf. This is an away game for me. I get it. So let's talk foolishness for a little bit. So Paul's going to say some things we would normally say are inappropriate or, or wrong. But he's doing them within the context of a foolish conversation. And he's going, to, he's going to logically take them through their foolishness to where it makes sense. And take them out of the foolishness. Uh, it's kind of fun, progression. Uh, so he says, uh, bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Okay? Okay? Is that good? Yes? All right. Verse 2. Uh, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. Uh, who's the husband, by the way? Right? Here we find it in the next phrase. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul starts an analogy here of marriage. So I started you as a church so that you, in an analogous way, could be married to Christ. If you're going to get married to Christ, I want you to be pure. Kind of implies some things in the analogy that we're not going to go into because the analogy is going to stop right there. It's just an analogy to paint a picture to get you to a current reality. The picture of the pure virgin to Christ is really going to be defined in verse 3. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts will be led astray from, and here's the pure virgin in Christ in the analogy. This is what the church is supposed to be. This is what Christians are supposed to do in their presentation towards Christ. From a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what Paul is saying is the goal here. Hey, I'm, I'm a little jealous because what I thought we were working on was becoming sincere and pure in our devotion to God. You have us in a discussion of, um, of comparison between apostles. This is not the point. Let us get back to our, our first um, goal. Verse 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, are, are there different ideas about Jesus out there even today? Yeah, I mean, you know that he didn't actually die. He just he just kind of fell asleep or passed out for a little while, and then and then rewoke uh, a little while later. He didn't actually die. You know, that's a real theory out there. It's called swoon theory. It's in books, and you know uh, they're trying to pass that off, right? Were there any doubts on what was portrayed of the eyewitnesses of his time as to what happened? There was zero. But a little time passes and, well, you know, we're not sure. To, and they start coming up with other things, right? Paul says, be leery, be weary, uh, wary and leery of these kind of things when they start coming out. If someone tries to tell you that Jesus wasn't quite what he was portrayed to be. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received or accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, 
He says, you put up with it readily enough. Paul says, wait a minute. You know why we're having this foolish discussion? Because you have accepted twisted versions of the truth readily enough. Well, no, we're in good luck uh, because uh, humans don't have that problem anymore. We aren't uh, sold a bill of goods and we just kind of accept it at face value. I mean, if, if it's posted, it's always true. <laughs> I sarcastically am trying to point out the idea that we have the same problem today that Corinth had then. So it's appropriate for us to be on the road from Corinth to Chris, Christmas. He says, uh, we need to be careful that we're not readily accepting when the truth is twisted. You generally know when it's being twisted on you. You generally, you know, your spidey senses go off or I don't know, the Jedi in you, you know, says uh, there's a virgins in the force or whatever. Uh, but, you know, the longer you entertain it, it's kind of weird. It, 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 sets down roots and starts to grow and then you think, well, maybe there's something to that. I was talking to somebody the other day about sexuality and they were saying they, they weren't sure if that whole uh, abstinence and, and keeping your sexuality just within your marriage, if that's really, I'm not sure if they really buy that. And, and I couldn't believe that. I said, well, where do you find that in the Bible? Oh, it's not, it wasn't a discussion about Bible. It was just, well, you know, culture is different. Culture changes. I was like, wow. A culture will take anything that we have and twist it and use it to its own advantage. But we as Christians, we remember where truth comes from. Where do right and wrong get defined? They do not get defined in our pursuit of freedom. They do not get defined in our feelings or our emotions. They are not defined in what we can logically make sense of because what we know is there are many things about the Lord that we can't understand fully. We can't totally explain, right? You want two of them right now? Explain the Trinity. Uh, uh, uh. Right? How about this? Fully God, fully man, doctrine of Christ. How could he be 100% God and 100% man at the same time? Uh, 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 cannot compute, cannot compute. Danger, Will Robinson, right? It just doesn't work. So our truth gets defined by more than what we can make sense of or by what we feel is right or even by what we experience. And Paul's warning this church at Corinth like, hey, woo. Make sure you're not in the camp of readily accepts. It's a dangerous camp to be in. Uh, we test everything with scripture. And, and just for example, uh, just a little test of the emergency broadcast system right here. Uh, what, what, what do we use to know right and wrong? Where do, where do right and wrong come from? Right? If, if Mark Heitzman was here, he would say what? Jesus. Jesus okay? Right? And then... And then what we would do is you say, okay, if God defines truth, right and wrong, what avenues does he use to deliver that truth to us? And then Rich would say, as he did a second ago, Bible. we get some of it we get from the Bible. Where else do we get right and wrong? Holy Spirit, maybe guidance of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit can work in our, what's that other thing? 
psychologists might call it your id or your whatever. They got all these little words for your conscience, right? Uh, where else do you get truth? Prayer. You ask for it, okay? And it manifests itself in what other ways? After you pray for it. Confirmation. Where do you get confirmation? You sit with a mentor. You sit with Rich and Steve, uh, maybe Terry and Fred, and you sit down and you go, hey, uh, can we talk about this? Bible calls that the what? Wise counsel, counsel of elders, whatever. Now, is any single one of those guys going to have it 100% correct? Probably not. Reference, Job's buddies. But in the counsel of many witnesses, you might get something close to right. What's another way that we experience it? You try it. How about you just try it? And it either works, and it's of the Lord, or it doesn't work, right? You know what that one's called, right? How do you learn? The hard way. (laughs) That's how I learn. I learn most of my things the hard way, right? I prayed about it. I talked to Fred. I talked to so-and-so. I I read the Bible and found some verses, and then I go and try it. And I find out I read the verse wrong, and the other person, he didn't know what he was talking about. And, and God answered my prayer. The answer was no. Right? So there are ways to find out what's right and wrong. Culture is not necessarily one of them. And just because the crowd says this is what we want doesn't mean it's right. Reference the bottom of Mount Sinai. Uh, sociologists would tell you crowd theory, IQ goes down the larger the crowd is, right? So Paul's saying, be careful that we're not in the camp of readily accepts. Verse 5, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these, what are they? Oh, Paul, Paul, you've resorted to name calling. I, I tell my kids not to call each other names, right? But here Paul he starts calling them super apostles, right? Can you hear the music? Dun, 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 dun. There's a cape. It has an S on it, but it's not for Superman. Why, why would he name call? Because we're in a foolish conversation again, remember? This is not something Paul would normally do. But he says, wait, wait a minute. These people, they're from Jerusalem. Well, you know, they... I can't be as good as them. They're from Jerusalem. By the way, any of you from Jerusalem? Oh, you're not, huh? Hmm. Uh, any of you getting paid to be a missionary to a startup church? No? Gosh, you guys are all inferior. Paul says, I am not in the least, not in the least, not the smallest unit of measure. I am not inferior to these people from the right pay, place. And paid for their talent. Uh, Good at speaking, by the way, which we're going to hear in a few seconds, but he hasn't referenced it just yet. And Paul says, I am not in the least inferior to them. Uh, Any guesses? Uh, Does he really think they're super apostles? No. Okay. And, And how does Paul feel about himself in the face of the opposition that he's trying to handle? How does he feel about himself? What does he say? Yeah, yeah, how would you say that on the street? Because you would not ever walk up to somebody and say, by the way, I am feeling today not in the least inferior to you. Right? How would you say it? 
feeling pretty good about myself today. Is Paul feeling confident here? You know what happens uh, when you face opposition? You start to question. Am, am I the right guy? Do I have enough talent? Do I know enough? Maybe they're right. All the fears come out. And that's what opposition does to you. And Paul doesn't let it happen to him. What does Paul say? He maintains his identity. He maintains his value. So I ask you this question. Are you inferior? No. I got two. I got two. <laughs> Can I get a third? No. Are you inferior? No. Are you inferior? No. In any way? I see right there. You're like, well, yeah, maybe. I, I don't know if I'm as good a speaker as so and so. I don't know if I am good at math, like so. Folks, none of those things matter. Where is your value determined? In God, in Christ, in your design of how He's made you. So what? You're not good at math. So that's why Gene's here. Right? Uh, Maybe you don't have fashion sense and you need help from somebody who lives maybe in the same room as you. Okay? Uh, It doesn't determine your value. You bring something to the table? Every time you walk in a room? Yeah. Opposition will make you question that. Opposition will... Have you doubt God's design of how he's made you to think, to feel, to experience, to, to the words that you choose? Hey, you know what? They're just the words you choose. Just own them. Enjoy it. And go through as best you can your day, your mission, your ministry, your experiences, the way God's called you to do it. Because opposition is going to show up. It's going to rear its ugly face. It's going to attack, point the finger. Maybe it might get loud. Uh, but it's going to happen in a lot of places. Right? Especially, especially if you say Merry Christmas. You might get some opposition to that. You ever had that one? Hey, Merry Christmas. You mean Happy Holidays? You know, how do you deal with that, right? And uh, that could make you feel like, oh, why I'm in bad shape. Somebody might come in with a report from business and say, hey, this report says your department, da-da-da, whatever. Is there a problem? Yes. Are you the problem? No. You're the solution. And you can own it. Yeah, we made a mistake, whatever, but it doesn't change your value. You're by no means in any way inferior Paul maintains his value and his confidence. And where does he place them? He places them in Christ. He's going to do it in kind of a fun way, kind of a goofy way, or as he would say, in a foolish way here as we proceed. Okay? Uh, Even, verse 6, if I am unskilled in speaking, Paul wasn't a good speaker. Uh, Most prolific writer of the New Testament, by the way. Uh, This is bad news for you. Because if I ask most of you, hey, you, public speaking, how are you? You like public speaking? Most of you would say, no, no thank you, right? Uh, sorry, you're not off the hook. That you can't 
speak publicly, one, you might be wrong. And two, Paul says, yeah, that's not an excuse. He says, even if I'm not a skilled speaker, I am not so in knowledge. I'm good at this, but not good at that, right? Paul says, if we're going to compare, well, let me talk about the things that I am good at. Right? Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Wait a minute. I thought we were doing a comparison between super apostles. Why does he say, did I commit a a, a sin in humbling myself so that who would be exalted? You. He's not talking to super apostles. Who's he talking to? The church. He's saying... I humbled myself for the benefit of the church. That's the real issue, not the status of the apostles. How did we get off topic, people? Great point for him to make to try and bring them from foolishness into common sense. uh, Because, he says, I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. Was that a sin? You see, some people want to discount him because he didn't take the money, he didn't take the gift. He says, no, no, no. I was trying to make do with what I had, and I had enough, and there was no need. But this doesn't change the point of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Whether I get paid for it or not, we're trying to grow the church. I robbed others. Look at how he says this. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. You you caused a crime. (laughs) Is kind of what he says. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden... Who? For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. His need was supplied by someone else. So I refrained and will refrain, past tense and in the future, from being a burden to you in any way. He says, the point of our discussion is not my status, but how are you doing as a church? And is what I do a burden or a blessing? Guys, it's so backwards for common culture these days. Everything is about us and our rights and what we get and what's our title and how are they talking about me? Did you see what they posted about me? That kind of thing. Rather than, hey, are we all putting hands on the rope and tugging the same direction for the greater good of the bigger cause of whatever it is, the business making money or or the family doing well or the people getting healed, whatever the scenario is. And Paul says, let's stay on topic and what we're supposed to be doing. So I refrain and will refrain from being a burden. Verse 10, as the truth of Christ is in me, This boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia, where Corinth is. He says, I will continue to boast. What's wrong with that? I thought, are we supposed to boast and brag and have egos? Oh, please act like second service. Come on, folks. We're not supposed to do that. But remember, foolish conversation. It says, oh, if we're going to have a foolish conversation about bragging, comparing resumes, then I can do foolish. So if we're going to do what these super apostles are bragging about, then let me play the game with you. And why? Verse 11. Because I do not love you. God knows I love you. Why will I brag? Not for myself. And not to be a comparison to the other apostles, but so that you know that what I do is for the benefit of you. 
What if in the face of opposition you tried to do something to the benefit of those that oppose you rather than taking it personally as if somehow it were true? I mean, you know when there's opposition, it's, it's generally not about you. Or you're not the one with the complaint. You're not the one talking. Uh, who's the one that has an issue? The person initiating. I would have more questions about their condition, about their relationship with the Lord, rather than you. But yet when they oppose you, you will question yourself. Isn't that goofy? It's a great strategy of attack. But the point then becomes not on what you're working on together or trying to solve, but it becomes a comparison thing between the two of you. Rather than, Paul says, it's not about us, it's about the church. It's a great way of him changing the subject and bringing it back to point. Verse 12, And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claims of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. I think there's double meaning there. Are they working on the same terms? No. One's getting paid and one's getting not. I would say that's not the most important meaning. I would say that the most important meaning is the difference in terms of the two groups of apostles and one is doing it for the benefit of the church and one is doing it for the betterment of himself. And Paul says, oh, you want to compare? Mm. Uh, when you do stuff for the family, are you doing it so that you look good when you go out in public and people talk about your family? No. I mean, very few families do that, right? Within families, it's kind of like we care about each other and we want to take care of them. Paul says, let's act that way. 13, verse 13. For such men are false apostles, oh, name calling, false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Second reference now to the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. It's kind of interesting. Is that a fun, is that a good sentence for them? Now, the end refers to judgment, and, and it's not going to go well for them because they're off base. But I would love to pair that with a, a phrase that we, we read a little bit earlier, the idea of sec- accepting a twisted truth readily enough. Uh, you know, If we pair those two, that'd mean that the church was buying what these foolish people have been selling, and if they're buying that, then... Uh, their end will correspond to their deeds as well. And, and if that's the case, then there, there's a, a danger in us having to change that pronoun from their to our. When we accept the lie that other people say about us, when we accept the lies, the twisted truth that people say about God, we run the risk of then behaving on those twisted, irrational truths and therefore our deeds change, and our end will correspond to our deeds. And Paul says, let's not be that way. I repeat, verse 16, let no one think me foolish. He says, let's, let's maybe start putting away with this foolishness. But even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What am I saying with this boastful confidence? 
I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a what? As a fool. You want to do the comparison game? He says, great. Let's do the comparison game. Really, Let me read you my resume. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools. Uh-oh, what did he just call the super apostles? Being wise yourselves. Does he really mean that? No, he's trying to teach them. You need to learn how to be wise. For you bear it. This is what you put up with. If someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on errors, or strikes you in the face. Why, why did he reference those things? Because they probably just happened. By who? Super apostles. Come into town, throwing their weight around, and accusing, bringing opposition, conflict, saying you need to pay us, because this is how the relationship with the Lord works for churches and missionaries. And watch what Paul says. He says, you put up with that when that happens, but kind of like you won't put up with me. This is ironic. He says, but to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Paul says, I'm just a little guy. I couldn't beat you up. Sorry. I wasn't strong enough to take advantage of you like these other super apostles. He's being sarcastic again. Because it's a foolish conversation. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, remember. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Read this one for me. What? I'm a better Christian than them. He said... Doesn't that feel like a violation? I mean, that shouldn't be in the Bible. Out of context, it shouldn't. But in the context of a foolish conversation, what's he saying? Is the very thing that they're accusing me of, who's better as a Christian? And what does he say? I, I got the, the, the background that I need to have. Are we really comparing Christianity? I am talking like a what? Okay, so is he even taking himself seriously? Okay, so you guys can calm down. He did, it wasn't a violation, all right? Uh, with far, far greater labors, far more imprisonments. Wait, are these things to brag about? I think these are things to be ashamed of. I thought he was bragging. Watch what he does on the bragging. He, he's going to turn it, and he's going to brag about things most people would be ashamed of. Far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of Jews the 40 lashes less one because 40 was considered maybe killing you and they wanted to make sure they didn't do that so they'd only give them 39 lashes. I've done that five times, three times, verse 25. I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. That's my least favorite one. I might do the other ones. I don't want to float in the ocean by myself for a day and a half. I don't know. For some reason, I was stuck on that one all this week. Floating in the ocean? I can't see. No, no, no. Not me. Uh, take me, Lord, right? Um, three times we stoned, shipwrecked, adrift in the sea. Verse 26. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the... Wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, 
in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. What a horrid list. Terrible list. He says, oh, oh, we're bragging? Well, let me tell you my resume as a rabbi and where I studied here. Wait, wait. There's nothing about his degrees or how many years he worked at Advent or anything like that, right? (laughs) He's kind of making a mockery of this comparison thing. When you face opposition, you need not engage it fully or accept it fully. Paul's twisting the game and saying, "Uh, I think I'll brag on other things. Verse 28, and apart from other things, Because he could have listed more. There's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You ever heard that phrase, saving the best for last? He lists this terrible list of all these mistreatments and things that he struggled with. And I think he saves the best for last and says, you know, the worst one is the anxiety that I feel for the church that it would do well and grow and succeed and reach more people, that they would come to a a knowledge of, of Christ, his sacrifice, his love. That's what I'm worried about. Do you want to compare that to the super apostles? Verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my what? weakness and there's where I would say the foolish conversation has probably ended because he says I I boast in my weakness which means I boast in the strength of God not myself great example in stark contrast to what the super apostles are doing verse 31 the God and father of the Lord Jesus who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying Pretty strong statement for him to say, considering some of the phrases he used during his foolish talk. I'm a better Christian than them. And those guys, he says, hey, hey, God's heard everything that I said, and he knows that I'm speaking the truth. Pretty bold statement. And now watch this. And I think this one's kind of fun. It's going to be our third fill-in. Verse 32. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen? Amen. Uh, This is a guy who knows how to be chased by a governor and a king. All the forces in town probably looking for him. And how's he get out? Hey, I'm just a little guy. I think I can fit in that basket. You want to let me out this window? I'm going to run, some would say like a coward from the authorities. This guy knows what it's like to face opposition. But let me talk to you about three things, three of the things I think we can take from this passage. I think there's probably more and would love for you to seek your own things from this passage, but here's three that I might offer. One, in the face of opposition, we have to learn to differentiate between deceit and knowledge. We need to know the difference between those two. Verse 3, he says, I fear that you will be deceived like the serpent did when he was cunning towards Eve. He says, it's easy for us to be deceived, 
verse 6, when you follow farther down, he says, Indeed, I consider that I am not least inferior of these super apostles. Even though I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. He says, I know the truth. And I know when people are trying to deceive me. And that's a big deal. We need to know where truth comes from. And then we need to know when it's being challenged. When it's being challenged, we need to be thinking about what's the bias behind it? What's the motivation for uh, changing what we believe about this or that? And, and here's where I would reference again. Uh, when somebody is, is attacking you or initiating conflict with you, they're deceived. They're the ones in conflict. And you need to be careful not to get into comparison, name-calling, fear of your future or your value, your status. Zero of that is in question to God. In fact, you can play their game with them a little bit. Paul plays the game. And he inserts knowledge into the game. Love that he does that. We live in a culture that loves to put information out there. And it's a good thing that we've progressed so much as as humankind because the good news is is there's no more deceit anymore. Anything people post, it's totally true. And um, everything that was said in the election on both sides, you know, we, we can bank on all of it, right? We have a culture that, that is uh, less and less prepared to deal with opposition, stay calm, know who they are, know their design. These are all things that God meant for us never to have to question. Amen? The other thing is this. Uh, when we differentiate between deceit and knowledge, we know where our, our provisions come from. We know who's really taking care of us. And so uh, verse 9 draws our attention to this idea. And Paul says it twice in this verse. He says, When I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers coming from Macedonia supplied my needs, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening What if in the face of opposition, those who opposed you, you worked to avoid being a burden to them? What if you tried to cooperate with them to the point where you actually helped them through whatever the issue is that they're dealing with that made them question you in the first place? What if you became an agent of change, an agent of healing, health, whatever? What if you prayed for them? Whoa. I don't want to be too controversial here. Uh, but what, what, if, what if you work to avoid being a burden? And therefore, if you're not a burden, then you can now work on being a blessing. Right? Avoid being a burden. Be a blessing. It's not a fill-in, but it might be worth writing down. Uh, because that's what we're trying to get. That's how you solve opposition. Solve the conflict. And then here's the last one. And this one, this one's kind of fun, but I think it's a little more obscure. He says uh, in the last four or five verses, he says, you know, I, I was in uh, town and, and the king and the governor were coming after me. 
They're trying to get their hands on me. Good news. I took care of it. Is that what he said? No. Did he take matters into his own hands? No. He, he, he put himself in someone else's hands. We, we're not even sure. There's no name for the hands that he was put in. But somebody had hands on a rope at the end of a basket. And he climbed in this basket. They pushed him out. The good thing he was a small little guy and wasn't big enough to punch anybody in the face, as he claimed earlier. Because I mean, he was small enough to fit in a basket and someone with their hands could let him down the wall. You can call it cowardice or running or whatever. I, I call it this. I, I call it him understanding which hands he's supposed to be in. Are there some authorities that they're out of line? And he runs from him. But he could have taken matters into his own hands. He doesn't. Instead, he puts himself in the hands of someone else who can help him. And part of us knowing the difference between deceit and knowledge is knowing what are the helping hands. You see, there's, there's three sets of different hands there that you've you got to evaluate. And, and I would argue that there's really a fourth set of hands. Because I think the hands that let him down in the basket were orchestrated by God's hand. I think in the midst of opposition and conflict, when people question your status or your resume or your intentions or your heart or any of that, you have to remember who you place, uh, how you place yourself in the right hands. In the midst of something going on, one of the questions you might ask yourself is, which set of hands am I focusing on? My own? I'm going to solve this. I'm going to be independent. self are, are you... Focusing on the hands of somebody who's after you. You put a lot of weight on the hands that of, of a, another couple, another person that might be able to help you. Or is there a point where you step back from all of it and go, there's one set of hands that's more important than all of this, and that's God's. I love that he says in that super long list, hey, I was a shipwrecked, I was beaten, I was, you know, all this stuff. Those are really testimonies as to the hands that he was uh, held in, and so we have to we have to place ourselves in the right hands, and that becomes the question: Am I trusting in the Lord? You know, I'll admit there are times where I go through things, and I can go hours, days, at a time, and stop and think to myself, "I haven't prayed about this. Why not?" My trust is in the wrong set of hands at that point. I've wasted all this time where I could have asked God, asked somebody else, whatever. But getting to that place. That's a hard place to get to when you're in opposition. People are accusing you and pointing the finger and the whole thing. But it's a place you need to get to. We need to learn how to do those three things. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you, Lord, that uh, that you give us everything we need. Well, some of us need a basket and a rope at times. Some of us need a friend. Some of us need to change what's going on in, inside our own heads, how we think about ourselves or how we feel. Lord, we need all of that to be generated by you and our trust and our love for you. And recognize that 
what you did with your son was meant to be the greatest statement of our value and a reminder that we we need not be in the least bit inferior or feel that way anymore. If you're here this morning and you you never placed yourself in God's hands, ultimately, that's what He wants of you. You can start that today. You can say a prayer, however you like. But it might be that you would say to Him, Lord, today I accept you. I place myself in your hands. And from this day forward, I will live forgiven. I will live thankful for you and what you've done for me. And pray, Lord, that you would help me to see things through your eyes from from this point on. If that's your prayer, we want to help you. Come up after service. Right here at stage. I'll be up here. We want to help. On another note, if you're if you're here this morning and you're just in the midst of opposition and you just need somebody to pray with you, come up front for that too. We'll have staff and prayer team people up here. We'd love to pray with you face to face. If that's you. Lord, we thank you for this season. We thank you for the opportunities it will provide. And I pray, Lord, you would be with us as we walk through it. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.